Welcome, everybody, to the first video edition of the Gameology Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Matthew Falvey, and this is... Attila Gabriel Branitsky. That's right. On episode 31, we're going to be talking about The Legend of Zelda, the evolution of Zelda. This is a series that's been going on since 1986. We're about to have the newest version drop on March 3rd on both the Wii U and the Nintendo Switch. A lot of people, well, a lot of people at Nintendo are saying this is a sort of a throwback to the original Zelda games. Sort of the idea of the first Zelda, that openness, but now fully, fully realized. And they even did a really cool trick with um, imitating some of the artwork that was found in the first manual, but showing that in-game, in-game engine of Link standing on top of a hill and looking out to the mountains. So, Attila, why did you pick this topic? So, when I was uh, hearing about the... Um, a lot of the promotional stuff for Breath of the Wild, um, specifically the way that they were focusing on having uh, shrines in the world instead of temples. Um, not that there won't necessarily be temples as well, but just the um, the design decisions that the Legend of Zelda franchise has been making um, have been really interesting because anytime you've got this massive long-running franchise, you've got to wonder how it is that they're able to keep going and maintain such um, like interest in the series make every game feel like incredible but different from one another um i'd say more than most franchises the legend of zelda games have really like there's the sort of core aspects of what you would refer to as a zelda game that have changed over time um or rather there's like some things that haven't changed that's those are the things that make the game feel like a legend of zelda title but in general um there's the sort of uh, the surface level details, the locales, like those are the things that change, and yet it still feels like Zelda. It still feels like one of the, you know, experiences that so many gamers look forward to playing after all these years. Yeah, I would say, I mean, let's talk about what makes a Zelda feel like a Zelda. You've got uh, a lone, a lone adventurer. Usually doesn't have too much help, although the later games brought in more of that help more directly, where the earlier yeah. games you would find villagers and they would give you sort of cryptic clues. Uh, and it's and it's about dungeons and temples and making your way towards a final enemy and collecting pieces along the way. Uh, and then different items from each of the dungeons that either help you solve puzzles, defeat a boss in that dungeon, yeah. or help you out later on. I think the biggest change... When they went, especially from the very first Zelda and A Link to the Past, we won't talk so much about uh, number two, Link's uh, The Adventure of Link, which was quite a lot different, is when you went from that 2D style to the 3D, Nintendo was smarter. They've always worked well within their limitations. They knew that the 3D world would be a little more difficult to navigate for people, especially when this could have been their very first 3D game. So they took the emphasis off the fast-paced arcade action of the first Zelda and A Link to the Past, where at times that game was almost like bullet hell. There were enemies on every screen. You were always being, you're always in danger and there were a lot of projectiles flying at you. In the 3D Zeldas, it was slowed down. A lot of more one-on-one duels, which is actually similar to Zelda 2 style. And it was more about puzzles and, and enjoying, using the 3D space to paint these dungeons in a way that you could see the solution visually, look around your space. I always, when I feel, imagine or look back on playing like Ocarina of Time, I think of entering a dungeon and just taking a look. And that sort of, usually the dungeon music is a little more ambient, a little slower, whereas the first Zeldas were like, go, go, go. You got a lot of enemies to defeat here. But the 3D Zeldas were all about taking it in, the ambience of it, maybe a torch crackling off in the distance and trying to figure out how do I get through this dungeon into the next room. 
Yeah, I think it was uh, it was really interesting the way that um, like between the very first game, right? So where you have absolutely no direction other than these, like as you said, the sort of cryptic hints that you get from occasional people. That I mean, in all honesty, a lot of them are like hidden behind walls or hidden away in um, uh, like trees you had to burn down to find entrances to stuff. Like the hints were practically as hidden as the temple and dun- dungeon entrances themselves. So it made for a, a game where there was like so much trial and error and where um, having a map, like the, the map that was published in the original Nintendo Power made it incredibly useful to have that for a game as grand in scale as the original uh, Legend of Zelda. Um, and it was a game that like you could, you know, I think a lot of people really enjoyed that feeling of like not being told where to go, that they could just explore the different like parts of the world. But um, then when Link to the Past came along, there was much more sort of structure to the world. They were, um, there were a lot more NPCs to tell you things, NPCs in much more obvious locations like uh, Kakariko Village and that sort of thing um, sort of helped guide players along. And then in the uh, 3D Legend of Zelda, uh, as you mentioned, in Ocarina of Time, they, um, I mean, they ha- they added Navi as a sort of helper character, and I think that's that's really the first time you've had, I mean, there was uh, Sahasrala, probably butchering the pronunciation of that in Link to the Past, as the sort of recurring, like, give you information character, but now a quote-unquote helper character has been a staple of the Legend of Zelda 3D games between uh, Navi, um, King of Red Lions, Midna, and then Fee. Although it seems now that in um, Breath of the Wild, they're actually not going to have a direct helper character. Yeah, so they're getting back to the roots in that way. I think Navi yeah. was a really interesting choice because she could move. She was in the environment with you, and she could mm. actually visually take a highlighter right to the spot you needed to go and say, yeah. look at this. There was a lot of that look and listen. Yeah, it was very simple. It was it was really well done. And I think I think it helped because I mean, that game came out two years after 3D gaming hit the console market and they did a great job. Nintendo did a great job with Mario slowly walking you through how to play in a 3D space. And Zelda was yeah. uh, that game still holds up going back to it now. And you've you have more experience with, say, uh, Midna. And who's the who's the sort of space anamorphic David Bowie creature that's in? What is it, Skyward Sword? Fee. Fee, okay. I haven't played Skyward Sword, but I've watched some videos critiquing this and I've heard you talk about it. And the problem with Fee is that it's like there's hand-holding and there's like explaining the same thing that was just shown in a text box. Yeah. Just in case you 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 didn't read it. It's like they took that way too far and I think that this is them bouncing all the way back. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things where I think that when Navi was introduced to Ocarina of Time, um, I'm willing to bet uh, as much as having a fairy was made part of the story in the early game, like the boy without a fairy, um, I'm willing to bet Navi was included in the game sometime after initial development and playtesting. I'm willing to bet that having this character who like physically floated around you and 
like the the concept of lock on targeting was kind of new in that time. So mm-hmm. having an arrow above an enemy, like pointing out, like this is the guy that you're attacking right now. Having Navi actually fly out and be this visual indicator of like this is who you're attacking right now, probably helped to make the connection a bit better in people's minds. And since then, it you know afterwards it wasn't necessary. So it's not like the King of Red Lines shows up in uh, Wind Waker to like point stuff out. I'd say. Wind Waker did a good job of having uh, a character who wasn't too handholdy, like the uh, King of Red Lions, um, was there to sort of guide you through, but he didn't constantly interfere with what you were doing, um, and it didn't feel as handholdy as uh, Fee ended up being in Skyward Sword, where not only is she telling you what to do, but she's being redundant about it as well. And it just, it, it was the redundancy that was painful. It was like a giant tentacle bursts out in front of you. And like, then she says, warning, danger. It's like, I, I could have pieced together that the giant tentacle was dangerous. You know, you didn't need to tell me that. Um, and then I think my favorite companion character was definitely Midna, just in terms of the way she would quote unquote, like suggest help to the player was done in this kind of snarky way mm-hmm. um made it it made it seem like like she was talking down to you a little as in like oh come on how can't you figure this out and it, it just it didn't make it feel like the game was babying you in a sense and i i guess that's probably not something that everyone liked goodness knows they spend the entire plot of skyward sword talking down to the player and i hated that but having the companion character point stuff out to you in a way that's like oh look isn't this so obvious it just it made it feel a bit more like i don't know like i said i don't um it's sort of hard to quantify exactly why that was uh more interesting but again it might just be in line with my own personal preferences i i think nintendo at that time with Zelda on the Wii was straddling the line of who are we making this game for and trying to make it for yeah. both people. And in the way that Midna felt like a core gamer who doesn't want a tutorial was giving mm-hmm. the tutorial. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, actually. And then I think with Skyward Sword, maybe they... Because the Zelda games haven't sold extremely well. Um, the, the Ocarina of Time did. Yeah. In terms of percentage of the install base, it had mm-hmm. about like a third or more of the people who owned an N64 had Ocarina of Time. But the percentage of Wii owners that had the Zelda games was actually pretty small mm-hmm. in comparison to how many people bought these things. So yeah. I, I think they might have been looking at those numbers and thought, well, let's make the, the Skyward Sword even more handholdy just in case. And that, I think, went, it, they just went too far. And yeah. I think they've recognized that. And Breath of the Wild is going back to that, that, feel of i was talking about this today with with a friend and i said i was looking forward to playing this game at the same time as him Mm. and and you and whoever because this game i I got a feeling breath of the wild is not going to be that uh linear in a way because it doesn't look like it yeah it's a very open place the other zelda games there's a a very strict order in the dungeons the first zelda you can't get lost but if you end up in a a spot where it's too powerful you're going to be sent back to the beginning and you're probably going to go to an easier spot but uh you know, in the other 3D Zeldas, it was very, very ordered. Um, but this one, I got a feeling that you and me, a week later, we could check in after playing this game. and be like, We're going to have completely different experiences. Yeah, I went this way, you went that way. What's the, you know, what are those shrines like? And it's going to bring, I think Miyamoto, he said that he loved the idea of the first Zelda people talking about it. 
And yeah. I remember my friend uh, told me when he was growing up, his mom used to play the first Zelda and would talk to the other moms about how to get into this spot. And they, Nintendo likes that. They don't want you to be online looking up facts. They want you in real yeah. life, eye to eye, like one to switch discussing yeah. how to beat a Zelda game. Yeah, I, I think it's um, what, like the most interesting thing to me is looking at uh, going from Twilight Princess through uh, Skyward Sword and can't forget a link between worlds and then breath of the wild sure and i just bumped the mic and that probably made a lot of noise um anyway just the the reason i, I call attention to those four games because they're chronologically they're the closest together like twilight princess was practically um beat for beat very similar to the way ocarina of time was um just in terms of like it's a game where you do some stuff in the overworld um then you enter a dungeon you defeat the dungeon you get an item you collect the um the shards of uh, all these these the, the dark oh, i'm forgetting it now it's the things that midnight was looking for uh and then you collect the shards of the mirror i remember that part at least and that's all sort of like the classic zelda formula of like form together the pieces of something and then go defeat the big bad um in that's you know, formulae, formula-wise, it's very similar to Ocarina of Time. And mm -hmm. it just felt that, or, or even um, uh, Wind Waker before it. Like, both of those games felt like it's it's what people expected Zelda to be after Ocarina of Time. Like, nin Nintendo uh, quite rightly felt that the response to Ocarina of Time was so good that every, that at least the, uh, the shadow it cast, I guess you could mm -hmm. say, in over uh, Wind Waker and... Um, Twilight Princess was so significant that both of those games felt very similar. Like Ocarina of Time, um, Majora's Mask, of course, um, Wind Waker, and then Twilight Princess all felt like very similar games. And then it was only by the time we got to um, Skyward Sword where things started changing, uh, where now you had like a stamina meter. And that was something that uh, I don't know if it's been in any other Zelda title. Like maybe some of the, uh, I don't know if Oracle of Ages, Oracle Seasons, or any of the DS games had anything like that. But it was the first time where, you know, I, I looked at, my sister's playing through Twilight Princess now, and I was watching her climb a set of vines. And Link is like going up the vines one grid space at a time, and it's really slow and grueling. And then in... Uh, Skyward Sword, they said, okay, well, you have the stamina meter, you can uh, flick the remote to have him, like, jump up the vines in much faster time increments, um, but, of course, then you'll exhaust yourself, and you have the potential of falling off the vines, and then in uh, Link Between Worlds, they took the stamina meter uh, a little bit further, and they said that, uh, like, well, Link's physical actions are no longer limited by stamina, but your item usages. So now you don't even have to worry about enemies dropping bows or um, I should say arrows and bombs and other sort of items that you like you, you physically could not complete an area without having these items. Because everything's now tied to an energy system, you just know that you can't fire more than X amount of arrows in a given span of time. Mm -hmm. You have to... Uh, like you'll you'll have you're guaranteed to have these items if you need them to solve a puzzle. That's the best thing that it guarantees using the energy system. 
Um, but then the fact that, uh, like, it, when, when you're designing combat, uh, in Wind Waker, it was really easy to just pull out your quiver of 99 arrows and shoot enemies in the face and instant kill them because you have lock-on targeting. Uh, by the fact that they've now said that you can fire no more than three arrows within this span of time, it means that enemies that are dispatched with bows, um, you have to like fire an arrow, wait for it to recharge, fire an arrow, wait for it to recharge, or whatever. And that if they introduce too many enemies of the same type at a given time, you have to switch up your tactics. And that makes it um, easier to design more tightly knit uh, combat encounters where they're, the player has to think more strategically about their actions. They can't just empty a quiver of 99 arrows to solve every problem. Hmm. It's interesting uh, to think that Skyward so see I hadn't played it so I had, mm. didn't have this perspective that they had added some of the stamina meters which yeah. seems to be the jumping off point to what they're doing with Breath of the Wild taking it yeah. into more of a survival game yeah I'm watching some of the gameplay stuff you're you're looking at it about temperature it's all about crafting mm -hmm. and building and, and surviving in this world in a way that in the way that the first Zelda game had you exploring a world on your own discovering things that way but they just didn't have any of the mechanics in place for it to be more of a survival game the you know the, yeah. what's that? No, I was gonna say I was, I'm, I'm agreeing. Yeah, the one the one thing I'm a little worried about is that uh, what I haven't liked in previous Zelda games is the collecting and mm -hmm. the backtracking, and I'm a little worried yeah. that that Breath of the Wild might be highlighting that area of it. If I mean mm -hmm. I have a lot of faith that Nintendo, if that is the main focus of the game, they're gonna find a way to make that fun, perhaps. Just the uh, the crafting element and picking up loot is going to, and the progression is going to yeah. instill all of that with a lot of fun. And if the shrines are all different in a way, that's I think that's going to be a lot different than just go to this area, pick up this piece, go to this area, pick up this piece. Yeah. But I think they're walking a, a thin line, and they could be taking that into the dangerous territory of not focusing on what people really liked about Zelda, while having lots of temples, and instead going for... Could it could be a lot of collecting? Are they going to be able to instill enough variety and uniqueness in these shrines to make the game feel alive? See, that's the this is what inspired me to talk about this whole subject in the first place is that the fact that they're moving away from temples and going towards shrines now, or at least that more of the game is going to be about finding these shrines. I think they said there's like over 100, 150 of them. There's a lot. Like they didn't even say the exact number because I guess they want players to find out how many shrines there are. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing that struck me was the most interesting um, design decision of like, why why are there more shrines? Why is this more of a thing that we can expect to find in the environment? And I think the, the conclusion that I came to is because they want to uh, separate the sort of puzzle-solvey dungeon gameplay um, and the overworld exploration gameplay, they want that to happen a bit more um, frequently. Um, because like, let's take taking uh, Twilight Princess as an example, you would spend a whole bunch of time in the overworld. Um, you've played Twilight Princess, right? Uh, the first quarter. Okay, but if um, I'll just I'll fill you in and anyone else who's listening, basically you would spend a bunch of time in the overworld collecting these um, these tears from a light spirit who's been um, sort of diminished in its life force and going around the overworld, picking up all these tears, replenishing the life spirit, uh, solving problems in the overworld that 
uh, felt very distinct from when you actually got into a temple and then it was like all about the puzzle solving and the intricacies of going between rooms and collecting keys and like being the, the gameplay that takes place inside of a temple versus outside of a temple is very significant. Skyward Sword carried that forward. The gameplay experience of being outside a temple getting all the requisites to get into it felt very different. So what they're doing now effectively by having these shrines and having much more of them dotted around the world means that you're going to do like 10 minutes of exploration, 10 minutes of being in a shrine, 10 minutes more of exploration, 10 minutes more of being in a shrine. So you're getting much more like little bite-sized um, experiences of the puzzle solving. It keeps the gameplay feeling um, more engaging because it's not just a whole lot of this and then a whole lot of that. Now it's actually um sort of broken up and there's a bit more variety in your experience yeah and i think in a large game like that i'm sure anyone who's played a zelda game has gotten to a point where they're stuck on a dungeon and mm. in a more linear zelda game there's no real choice i mean you could hop out and maybe go fishing or something and hop back in but this allows you to to maybe leave a dungeon that's particularly challenging yeah. And you can always come back to the shrine later. Yeah, yeah. So, but I'm talking about if you left, like, I say, a big temple, that was a big problem. Mm -hmm. Or, and then you could maybe go do some shrines or other stuff that is still feels a bit more productive, but moving forward in a different path. And who knows, maybe, I don't know how the upgrade system works, but maybe doing a couple of the shrines could help you do another dungeon later on. Or maybe the shrine is giving you a problem. You can go to another one. You can just keep on moving on. And for a game this size, I think you, you do need. They're talking about how big the map is. Oh, it's 12 yeah. times bigger than this Zelda game and all that. So that, yeah. so although 100 Shrines sounds like a lot, if you didn't have it, you might end up with some of the problems of Wind Waker where you had, and even Skyward Sword, where you had these vast maps, yeah. but there really wasn't much to do. And if you... I think that the number of Shrines and just like things and points of interest that they're populating the map with in this game are in direct response to the previous game because... Uh, Wind Waker had at least one island per grid square, and every island had something that was populated. A lot of them weren't, I'm sorry, I should say a lot of them were not populated, but every one of them had like a piece of heart or something significant that you could find and do and accomplish something, and that felt really cool because it rewarded your sense of exploration. Um, in Skyward Sword, having played through the entire game, unless there was something actively important or like a reason to go to a specific place in the sky, there was no point in flying around. There was no point in doing any of that exploration because you find a tiny, like, floating circle of rock in the sky and it just doesn't... Like, there's nothing interesting or engaging about that. Yeah. So, and that's the thing, is people want to have some sort of progress. I guess I was a bit harsh on Wind Waker. I mean, if they do have something that is at least filling up the life bar in a way yeah. to make it feel like, all right, that was worth your 20 minutes or your half an hour uh, checking out this area. So I guess we'll yeah. be looking for Breath of the Wild to be doing something of the same. I'm, I'm sure they're not going to be able to come up with unique items in 100 different shrines. There's not going to be 100 different types of boomerangs. But they'll have to go with something of like this severely powers up your health or your damage output. Yeah, well, this is the interesting thing about recording this podcast before the game comes out. Is like yeah. I'm, I'm sort of I, I, I'm rather confident in my reasoning about why they decided to have shrines instead of uh, more focus on temples. But what I'm not sure about is the like the what are the rewards in these shrines do you have to complete a certain number of them um are they giving you pieces towards something greater or are they giving you uh like upgrade items um because i know like weapon crafting is a big thing in this game or like finding weapons 
and using them and then they break and you get new ones mm -hmm. so our shrine's gonna have weapons because that would be kind of odd since they're effectively consumable like a weapon will break after you use it so it doesn't seem like that's a good thing to get as a reward for completing a shrine there might be like weapons in the shrine but it's not the ultimate reward for completing the shrine um so it'll be interesting to see like obviously the very first couple shrines you tackle on the plateau like the starting area of the game are where you get the powers for your uh sheikah slate which um are your like bombs your like magnetism like all these super important powers that you're going to be using as puzzle solving elements in future shrines so those are essentially obligatory like you have to go to those shrines and get those powers and then the game opens up from there like you they, they say you can jump off the plateau in any direction you choose and just go um so it'll be interesting to see um because I, I criticized uh Link Between Worlds before about having a game that was a bit too open and then you hit the dark world in that game, which was a sort of halfway point, and then suddenly all the enemies are so much more difficult that the player experiences the ridiculous like spike in difficulty. So it'll be interesting to see if the shrines are engaging enough so that when you encounter them early in the game, are they too difficult? And then when you encounter them in the late part of the game, are they too easy? Have they been able to strike enough of a balance that like getting to a shrine, like maybe the maybe they'll tackle it as part of the environmental design. Maybe they'll say that like the shrines that are easy to get to are easy to beat and the shrines that are hard to get to are hard to beat. That seems to make the most sense to me. Yeah, just having a gating way of uh, either difficult enemies that could block the path yeah. to know that you're sufficiently powered up requiring a certain item. I, I think when you have 100 shrines that could be not all of them are going are going to be completely accessible, mm -hmm. but if, but a vast majority of them, I would imagine, are going to be in this open world and are and are accessible enough. You probably couldn't have too many specific items of reward because Nintendo has yeah. to plan that people are going to be approaching these in in a, in an uncontrolled a order, linear fashion. Yeah, yeah. So if they're you could go with a lot of more like universal upgrades and things that aren't going to grant specific. But who knows? I mean, that could be like, are they? It could be really interesting to have a random shrine put out of a much more powerful item. I mean, that's what we see with uh, loot crates and gambling. Why that works so well is that you don't know. It's not every ten loot crates you're going to get a great one. It's, the point of it is that you don't know what's going to be in the loot mm. crate. So if maybe yeah. a random shrine has something much more powerful, has a more. I don't think it could have anything that is. Um, uh, required to progress mm -hmm. too much further in the game. I think they're going to no, have to be I, more universal items. Yeah, I think that the uh, items that you get in the initial shrines are the ones that are going to be re the required items. So that basically, like, really early in this game, you're going to get the majority of the tools that you need to solve the majority of the puzzles, mm -hmm. which I think is fantastic because that just means that throughout the game, it, they don't have to worry about designing puzzles where... Um, your the 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 nature of the puzzles that they can construct are limited by the set of tools the player has to work with because now if the if they start the game uh and super early on the player has this huge uh tool set that they can draw on all the different uh sheikah slate powers that means that the nature of the puzzles they can construct are much more varied because now you can draw upon one or two or three um different powers within a single shrine and the way you have to approach these problems like looking around investigating your surroundings and being like okay i need to use power a to solve that then i need to switch over to power b to get past this obstacle and 
just uh, yeah, from uh, it, it'll just mean that there's more variety in the design of the shrines, and that the puzzle solving won't feel like just retreading the same ground or just using the same item nonstop to solve all your problems within one span of the game. Because that was sort of how the um, the the items worked in the original Legend of Zelda games was that you would get an item in a dungeon. And mm -hmm. you would use that item extensively in that dungeon to solve the like latter half of the dungeon. And then you would almost never, or at least like very little, would you ever have to use that item in dungeons to come. It depended on what the item was. Like the uh, ball and chain was a big part of the ice uh, mansion in Twilight Princess. But then you didn't really need to use the ball and chain anywhere else in the game after that. Hmm. Yeah, that that definitely could open it up. They'll have to. It'll be just such a different set of parameters for them when they're designing these shrines. To, to, they have to they have to think of it as like like the player could be coming to them in almost any state. Again, we're mm -hmm. we're talking about this before the game is out. So who knows how it is gated off and how you're going to approach them? But it's definitely interesting and it's a lot different. And I and I think it's it's definitely been time for Zelda to take a a much larger step forward from yeah, and then the 3D model. The, absolutely. And it's it just the, what I wanted to uh, sort of bring to light in this podcast was like, not, not only um, are some of these changes like really intriguing and really looking forward to a lot of them, but uh, they've had subtle roots in like the way that the Zelda games have been changing over the past few that have come out. Um, like the introduction of the stamina meter in Skyward Sword, the mm -hmm. introduction of that stamina meter as applying to items in link between worlds um just all these changes really come to light in breath of the wild but they're all elements that the games um it, it's sort of like the natural progression of where everything's been going um aside from a, a little bit of dna from what looks to be uh shadow of the colossus in terms of uh, some of the encounters with large enemies like actually being able to climb up on top of them and all that kind of stuff so it'll be interesting to see how the things that are actually new to this game and the way that the um so some of the things that are actually new some of the things that are um improved upon or tweaked mechanics in previous games and then what remains the same and it'll be an interesting mix i think everything we've seen about the game so far has led me to believe that like the way they've tuned these mechanics the the new the uh tweaked and the uh existing all seem to sync up really nicely and coalesce in a way that certainly yeah makes it look like a really interesting gameplay experience but i guess we'll find out we will to it was there anything else you wanted to touch on in terms of the evolution no, of the franchise that's that's about it as far as my thoughts are right now there you go very excited to play it are you going to be grabbing this on day one yeah, did you manage to order pre-order a Switch? Because I didn't. No, I haven't pre-ordered a Switch. I actually had sold my Wii U in anticipation of the Switch, looked at the Switch's launch lineup, mm. and thought, I'm going to go buy a Wii U again. And I got an incredible deal, and I'm just going to play it right on the Wii U. And then once uh, Mario Odyssey or another yeah. another interesting game comes up for the Switch, I'll probably wait a bit to grab it there. I am going to be getting it for the Switch, and that means that i got to wake up in the morning and go line up at a Best Buy or something. <laughs> oh, Lord. Good luck. Thank you. I'll need it. All right, everybody. That has been episode 31 of Gameology. Stay tuned. Next week, we're going to be talking about Game Feel. That's right. And by next week, I mean 
in the next two weeks. So I'm Matt. You can find me on Twitter at GameThinkTalk. And I've <clears throat> been your other host, Attila Gabriel Brinieski. You can find me on Twitter at BluishGreenPro or check out my website, BluishGreenProductions.com. Bye, everybody. Bye.